Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchange church. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Good to see you this morning and great to have those that are watching online this morning with us. It's always good. We say this Every week now, because now we do not take your physical bodies being present in this church for granted any longer. Um, You know, used to, you just kind of have church as usual, but when you go into uh, the pandemic mode and you just have a table sitting right there with a camera on it, it is, it's different. And so, uh, man, we're so glad to see people here this morning. Um... I know I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord, and if you are glad, say amen. Amen. And it's great to have Penny and Kelly with us. I always love it when Penny and Kelly come to town. This is Pastor Kevin's uh, mom and dad, and uh, love them a whole, whole lot. And uh, if you need dirt on me, they also have dirt on me, too. They got a lot on Kevin, and uh, so they could give you some stories on Kevin I encourage you to go and ask for some blackmail stories from Pastor Kevin, and uh, they would share that with you graciously, I'm sure. Listen, we're getting ready to close out the series we've been doing for eight weeks now. You are not far. Everybody say, you are not far. And, and as we get to close out this series this morning, it's kind of cool because this morning we get uh, Peter's perspective on the resurrection, okay? So we get kind of a glimpse in Peter's point of view of what the resurrection looked like. I know today is not Easter Sunday. This would have been a great series to lead us into Easter Sunday. Um, But in my point of view, every day should be Easter Sunday, amen? As believers, the resurrection is what it's all about. And I mean, that's the end-all, be-all. Now, the crucifixion was great, but the crucifixion is only great because... Come on, somebody, because, right, the resurrection. So the crucifixion does nothing without the resurrection. So that's, so this, this morning, if you'll just kind of bear with me, we're going to kind of do a little bit of an Easter redo. Every day should be kind of an Easter day for us. But uh, if I were to put a title on this message, and I kind of played with it a little bit, uh, I would probably use this, nobody left, okay? Or is it nobody left? Or does it no by either way you decide? So the title is flexible. So you can pick what whichever title you would like. And we're gonna go that. But if you think about it, the the message of Easter has never been more relevant throughout the modern world than it has been this year. Okay, in 2020. 2020 has been a year for us here in America, like we have never experienced before, never seen before. And the interesting thing is that this year, everybody is sitting up straight. Everybody's paying attention. And I mean, the events of Easter are more relevant, well, because they address our deepest and our greatest fears, okay? And all of our deepest and our greatest fears are pretty much up front and up center and and front center right now. If you think about it, there's questions like this with with the pandemic in mind and with the rioting that has taken place in our world, with all those things in mind, the questions are things like this. Is my family going to be all right? Does God know about this? Does God even care about this? Does God care about me? Does God care about my family? Does God even care about my prayers? Does God even care about our nation? Right? In fact, Perhaps the only time in history that the events of Easter were more relevant than they have been this year would be that very first Easter, okay? Now, those of us that are Jesus followers here today and in 2020, we, we have something to kind of look back on. So when, when we view Easter, we have a different vantage point than, than they did in the first century, those followers. We have something to kind of hang our hat on or to hang our hope on. But for first century followers of Jesus, it was a very 
different story. And this is a part of the story that I think most of us as believers, we probably misunderstand or maybe we just miss it all together. But perhaps if you're not a Christian, this is a part of the story that no one ever told you. And I understand the reason why. It's because maybe it's how we read the Bible or maybe how we haven't read the Bible. But no one ever told you this part of the story and uh, because it's so difficult for first century followers to, to, to get, but we miss it as well. So I want you to think about this. When Jesus was crucified, okay, when he died on the cross, hope died with him. Okay? So that night, that moment, that day that they hung Jesus on the cross, all hope was done. Okay? And like I said, for us today, it's so hard for us to put ourselves in this mindset because we have a different vantage point. We know what happens. We know the end of the story. But there, if you were there, when they hang Jesus on the cross, it's done. It's game over. When Jesus died, nobody believed when he died that he was the son of God. Everybody that thought maybe stopped thinking that. Nobody believed that he was the Messiah of God. Nobody believed that he was the Savior of the world. After Jesus was crucified, there were no Christians. Why? Because there was no Christ. <laughs> so you have to kind of get into that first century mindset. So we, we've said this a lot, Pastor Kevin and I, as we've, we've preached some of these series. But you have to kind of go back in a time machine and try to put yourself in their sandals. I was going to say shoes, but okay, well, good. I'm glad you're all keeping up with my jokes. See, those online, I can't even hear you laughing, but here they just busted out with a belly laugh. It was awesome. Uh, but there were no Christians because there was no Christ. It was lights out on everybody's faith. There was a, a brokenhearted mother. There was disillusioned Galileans that had been following Jesus around. Uh, they're, they're, they felt like at this point when Jesus died, maybe I've just wasted the last few years of my life. I've been following. I left. I gave up my career in fishing. You know, Matthew's probably thinking I gave up a very lucrative, lucrative career stealing everybody's money. And, and now for what? For what? I bought into this. I bought in and believed that he was who he said he was. And now there are no followers. There are no Christians, no believers. So think about this for a second. Jesus dies, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they go and they go to Pilate, and they ask Pilate if they could have Jesus' body. And so Pilate gives them Jesus' body. They take Jesus' body down from the cross. They wrap it in linen linen cloth. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea places Jesus' body in a family tomb, one of his family tombs in, in basically a cave, and he rolls this enormous rock in front of the tomb, this stone, because it was game over. Game over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the authors of the New Testament, Peter and his letters and Pause, he comes in and he writes his letters. They were all very clear that no one was planning on keeping this dream alive or this movement moving at this point. When Jesus is gone, it's over. If Jesus could not keep himself alive, is that my alarm? It's my wife's alarm, not to call any attention to her. Uh, I'm supposed to be done already, 1030, you only gave me 15 minutes, 10 minutes. <laughs> That's my preaching alarm. She says I go too long. So if Jesus couldn't keep himself alive, then what's the point of trying to keep the Jesus movement alive, right? I mean, they, they probably have sermons that they've heard a, a million times and, and in their mind and in their head, and they're probably getting ready to just reproduce these sermons and, and just keep teaching the, the Jesus teachings and the Jesus message. But when Jesus dies, there's no point. No point in trying to keep any of that going because clearly Jesus was not who he claimed to be, right? Everyone agree with that? And this was the issue. Jesus' teachings, and sometimes this is new for us and it's hard for us to understand, but Jesus' teachings 
Though we look at them and we think they were great, they were not the driving force behind the Jesus movement. In fact, Jesus' teachings back in the first century were really contradictory. It was actually his outrageous claims about himself that really kept the disciples with Jesus. It kept the apostles following Jesus because he would make these outrageous claims about himself. And, and those claims that he would make drove religious people crazy, okay? Religious people were going out of their mind dealing with all the ridiculous, crazy things that Jesus kept saying about himself. It, wa- it wasn't his miracles. It wasn't his healings. It wasn't uh, most of his teachings or mo- most of his parables because most people didn't even understand his parables in the first place, but it was his relentlessly attributing to himself things that could only be God. He would say things about himself that could only be attributed to God. Uh, For example, he claimed, this is a funny one, he claimed to have power over sin, right? Who, Who can forgive sin but God? You understand what I'm saying? And if you're in the first century and this guy, Jesus, starts saying that he has that kind of power, that's ridiculous. Then he he also made another claim. One time he said he was greater than the temple. Everybody go, ooh. (laughs) See, to us, no big deal. Our perspective is all weird. To them, the temple was life. It was their, the temple was their relationship with God. You take the temple away, it's over, lights up. And then Jesus comes along, and he starts saying, yeah, I'm even greater than the temple. And then here's another one he said. He said this, I'm greater than Moses. Ooh, right, you can play along if you want. That's okay. Uh, we need a sound bite. Ooh, and then we need one that claps and one that laughs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. So so Jesus claims he's greater than Moses. now. For us, again, perspective, perspective is key. It would basically be like me today trying to convince you that I'm greater than Jesus, okay? Right? That's ridiculous. And and as I started saying that, immediately a lot of you would be like, this guy is out of his mind, and he's teaching some crazy false teaching, this crazy false doctrine, and most of you, you would disown me, right? If I started claiming, hey, y'all know Jesus, how awesome Jesus I'm greater than, right? That's ridiculous. But that's, Jesus starts saying that about Moses, and Moses was kind of like their Jesus. Then he says this, I am, I'm even greater than Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So, right? He says that. He says, I'm greater than, than Abraham. He claimed to be greater than the prophets. Now, these prophets that he's talking about, these guys were, superheroes of the faith. It would be today, I was just thinking about this, the way my mind works, but thinking about it, it'd be like him, somebody coming in and saying, I am greater than Michael Jordan, Roger Staubach, Earl Campbell, Nolan Ryan, Babe Ruth, all these heroes that you had as a kid that you looked up to. One of mine as a kid was Bo Jackson, because Bo knows, you know, and then Jesus comes in and says, I am greater than all, all the prophets that have gone before. He says all these things, and then he starts attributing to himself these names. He starts giving these, these messianic-type titles to himself, and he starts giving himself brands and labels that only God could carry. And it was their confidence that, Perhaps, or maybe it was their suspicion, what if he's right? And it was these claims that he made about himself that kept the apostles and the disciples following Jesus. Peter and the boys, they didn't choose to follow Jesus because of what he taught. We've said this many, many times in this church. <laughs> in fact, they, they followed Jesus in spite of a lot of the things he taught. Because a lot of the things he taught went against 
everything that they had believed their whole life, everything that their mom and dad taught them from when they were children, growing up and going into the temple and listening to the teachers of the law and the, the, the elders teach, it goes against his teachings, went against some of the laws and the rules that had been put into place for hundreds of years. And Jesus is starting to contradict and take some of that away. So they didn't follow because of his teachings. They followed in spite of some of his teachings. Case in point, one time Jesus is teaching a crowd. A lot of you remember this story. He's got this huge crowd of people, and he decides to feed them with loaves of bread and fish. Y'all remember that story? It's a great story, right? He's got thousands, you know, in the scripture it'll say 5,000, but that's only counting the men. So then you add the women and children on top of that. Most experts believe it was well over 20-some-odd thousand people that he was feeding. And so he feeds thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And historically, at this moment in time, they tried to crown him king. Did you know that? They wanted to make him king right there. He's up there. He's preaching these sermons. He's teaching them. And, and then he feeds all these people. They wanted to make him king. And the reason they wanted to make him king <laughs> is because that's what kings did. Kings fed people. So they want to make him king, right? And so what happens is the crowd gets so big that Jesus and the disciples, they kind of pull back and they get into a boat and they travel around. Hey, TJ, if you have that map, you can put that map up now. I, I know it's not in my notes, but they travel the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, okay? And those that are watching online, you can see the map probably better. But they travel the southern part of the Sea of Galilee kind of to break away from the crowd, and they try to get out of the boat, and as they're getting out of the boat, who shows up? The crowd. <laughs> the crowd. Some of them, as a new crowd, the crowd that had been watching them travel across this just little peak portion, they started following. Next thing you know, he has a huge crowd again. So what does Jesus do? It's a teaching moment, right? Anytime he had a good crowd, he always took advantage of the opportunity. So he's thinking, I'm going to teach right now. And so he starts teaching something. And here's what he starts teaching. He says, I am the bread of life sent down from heaven. The problem is a lot of people in the crowd knew him, and somebody pipes up and goes, hey, you're not. You're not. You're Joseph's son. You're married. We know your mom. I used to work with your mom down at the, you know, I know your mom, and I know your brothers. <laughs> you didn't come from heaven. That's ridiculous. That's crazy talk, right? And, and so Jesus continues, and he starts teaching about himself, and he starts talking about himself in these weird terms, and it's so confusing. The people, they're thinking, he says he's the bread of life sent down from heaven? I know him. I, he's, a, he's a carpenter. He's a Nazarene carpenter. I, know, I worked with his dad for years. I know his mom. She's a sweetheart. She cooked. I mean, unbelievable cook, right? They're thinking these things. And, and as Jesus starts talking about these terms and labeling himself, they start getting confused, and, and they actually start getting really offended. The more he goes on about who he is, the more offended they become. See, now this is a portion that a lot of, you don't hear a lot of people preach on a lot because it's not the motivational story, but they started getting offended. In fact, John, he records this, and John writes, and he says this, from that time forward, many, many of his disciples, talking about many of his followers, not, not the apostles, but the crowds, it says this, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. His teachings were crazy. What he was saying to the crowd and what he was saying about himself was crazy. So people stopped following him, okay? If it was today, they would unfriend him. Think about it. Hey, you say one thing. You say anything politically opposite of a lot of your friends, they unfriend you. You're done. You're toast, right? 
If you build a wall, not build a wall, unfriend, okay? I believe that riot is right, rioting is wrong, unfriend. Black Lives Matter is right, Black Lives Matter, unfriend, okay? If you're opposite, you're going to be unfriend. Well, these people, they felt like Jesus was opposite of what they believed, what they had been taught, what they grew up thinking about their Messiah one day and their king one day. And so they stopped following him. This analogy and this terminology was offensive. He was using to describe himself, the words that he was using to describe himself was offensive. So Jesus, John documents this, and Jesus sees the crowds thinning. People are starting to leave. They can't handle his teachings. So John says that Jesus looked at his 12 disciples, and he says, you're not planning on leaving too, are you? Right? You're not planning on leaving too, are you? Well, nobody at this point, in my opinion, probably makes eye contact with Jesus. Uh, they're all looking down because they're not leaving, but they're thinking about it. They're probably thinking, well, I was fixing to, and then you called us out, so now I feel guilty, so I can't leave. Don't look at him, don't look at him, don't look at him. And so they do probably what we do in this situation. They all looked at Peter. Because <laughs> Peter is always the spokesman for the, for the group, right? And so it's what Peter doesn't say that's just as intuitive as what he does say. And so in this situation, Jesus says, <laughs> you guys aren't thinking about leaving me too, are you? This is what Peter does not say. Lord, leave you? Are you kidding? To whom shall we go? Nobody teaches as well as you do. We've learned so much. Your content is so compelling, and your storytelling skills are, oh, my goodness. They're without equal. Now, granted, (laughs) granted, today wasn't one of your better outings, okay, right? But But just one mediocre message is no reason to abandon you, right? That's not what Peter says. Why? Because they weren't following Jesus because of what he taught. He often did this. He often said some of the things that he just said to the crowd. So they weren't following because of what he taught. They were following because of who he said he was and who they were starting to believe he actually was. This is actually what Peter said, okay? Jesus looks at him and says, you're not thinking about leaving me too, are you? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of Aeonios Zoe. You have the words of full, abundant life. Okay? He's not talking about streets of gold and after after you die kind of life. He's talking about right now. You have the words that bless us and give us full of life, abundant life. And he says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Translated, you are the Messiah of God. They followed Jesus because of who Jesus claimed to be. And because, perhaps, who they thought Jesus actually was. Fast forward. Now he's dead. Okay? So now he's dead. Now he's buried. And clearly they were wrong. Clearly they were wrong. They knew that they were wrong because the Holy One of God, the Messiah of God, the resurrection and the life, the bread of life, the bread of life sent down from heaven could not possibly be crucified. He could not possibly be executed. I mean, God would never, God would never allow the Messiah, the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to be executed by, and not only just to be executed, but to be executed by a foreign power. That's impossible. So clearly they were wrong about Jesus, and clearly (laughs) Jesus wasn't telling the truth about who he was. They watched him die. And it's clear from the Gospels that all of them expected Jesus to do what dead people normally do, and we've said this before, and that's to 
stay dead. Stay dead. Stay dead. No one, no one, you would find no one standing outside the tomb that day counting backwards from 10. This wasn't like, a, okay, it's Easter Sunday morning. We know what happens on Easter Sunday morning. It's exciting. Let's all run to the grave and let's get there. It wasn't that. That wasn't their attitude, okay? These were not superstitious type people, okay? Nobody was expecting this to happen. And what's equally as interesting is no one writes themselves into the story as a hero, okay? In this time when everybody abandons Jesus, when everybody leaves and everybody stops following because Jesus died, not one writer said, but I stayed and, and kept the faith alive. Not one. Not one writer said, but I was the only one that still believed. Not one of them. In fact, all of the Gospels, all the Gospels, they're so honest, they all stopped believing. So I want to pause in that extraordinary moment in history, okay? So we're going to take a, a little trip for just a moment. In this moment in history, Jesus is dead. Jesus has now been buried. And what do we have left? What is left in the world? So if you're in the first century during this time, whether you were a part of the Jesus movement and following Jesus or not, Jesus has died. He's been taken off the cross. He's been put in a tomb, and the tomb has been rolled, sealed. So what do we have left? We have a corrupt religious system. We have a heartless empire. We have a relieved Roman governor and Pilate who cannot wait to get out of Jerusalem as soon as the Passover is over and go back to his coastal mansion. We have some sad Galileans, but we don't have a Savior. We don't have a Son of God. We don't have a Messiah. There's no Christ. There are no believers, and there is no hope. So in this moment in time in history, and that's why I said that maybe the events of Easter are more relevant this year than probably ever before, is because in that first century, there was a season that there was absolutely no hope. When I watch the news today, you know what I see? A lot of people who think that there is no hope, who feel like there is no hope. There's no hope for America. There's no hope for our children and our children's children, and, and hope has been lost. This pandemic that has just kind of been sweeping through and whatever side you're on, whether you believe it wholeheartedly or, or not so much, the fact of the matter is that people have died. People have lost their life. It affects some people different than others. No matter what side you stand on, the truth is this, that a lot of people have lost hope. They have fear that has just overwhelmed them and taken over their entire life. When Jesus died, hope died with Jesus. There were no Christians because there was no Christ. And then something happened. Everybody say something happened. Come on, everybody say something happened. Okay, and then something happened that changed everything because then that morning that sealed the promise, his buried body began to breathe again. And out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on you. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared that the grave has no hold on me. And this is, this. we've said this so many times in this church, and it's one of my favorite statements to say, but time and time before, that, that moment in history was the event. Everybody say the event. The event that launched the movement. Everybody say the movement. That eventually, and the movement being the church, that eventually brought us the Bible. Everybody say the Bible. So that morning, as Jesus' lifeless body started to pump again, and he started to breathe again, that was the event that changed history forever. We were singing the song this morning, Jesus, you changed everything. Jesus, you changed everything. Jesus, you changed everything. 
And I want, and, and as we're singing that song, I'm thinking, yeah, at the moment he started breathing again. It wasn't Jesus' birth that changed everything. I know, that's almost sacrilegious, almost blasphemous. But it wasn't his birth that changed everything. It wasn't his teachings that changed everything. It wasn't the healings that changed everything. It wasn't even his death that changed everything. It was the resurrection. The resurrection is what changed everything. Now, all his birth and and death and all that, that led and attributed to, but his resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, changed everything. So you got the event that, that launched a movement that eventually brought us the Bible, and this is really, really important, this sequence of events right here. In fact, if you get this sequence of events, the event, the movement, the Bible, if you get that sequence of events out of order, it's very dangerous. And if you get this sequence of events out of order, your faith in Jesus Christ, your faith as a believer and as a Christian becomes very fragile. Most of the people that I deal with on a daily basis that want to argue with me or they want to fight something with me, the reason that their their Christianity, their belief in Christ is so fragile is because they got these events out of order. Somebody told them these events backwards. You can't get these events out of order. If you lost your faith, I would say this. If you lost your faith because of something in the Bible or about the Bible, I have great news for you today. The Christian faith did not begin with Genesis, right? The Christian faith began with Jesus. And like I said a while ago, I'm not talking about with Jesus' birth. That was great. That's not when our faith began. And it wasn't even Jesus' teachings. Those were awesome. That's not when it began. And, and Jesus' healings, woo-hoo, powerful. That's not when it began. The the Christian faith began with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There were no believers until after something happened, after the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity did not, or Christians did not create Christianity. The resurrection actually created both of those. Okay, the Bible didn't come along and people start reading it and go, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to become a Jesus follower. This, is, this book is so powerful. What happened was there was an event, and that event was so powerful that people had to write about it. They had to write about it, and they documented it. Now, whenever I'm talking to a group of people and uh, or anybody will be riding around, or one of our guys that, that works with us will be riding around, and we'll, we'll just start talking Bible, we'll start talking gospel. I always get this question, and it's a great question, and a lot of people have asked it. And if you've asked this question, that means you're trekking along right with us. You, you understand what we're talking about. But I get this question a lot. But, okay, Pastor Jared, okay, I get it, Jared. But listen, the Bible is how we know about the resurrection, right? wrong okay it's a good question if if we didn't have the bible then how would we know about the resurrection we don't know about the resurrection because of the bible and a lot of people get this kind of backwards and they miss it and the reason a lot of people miss it is because people like me preachers we get the sequence out of order we get things backwards and and preachers start saying things and we make the bible end all be all everything flows and stems from the Bible. It is everything. And so we start to kind of get it backwards. But I want you to understand this, and I'm going to say it. We did a whole series uh, called Bible 101 for Adults last year or the year before last sometime, and we kind of addressed this a little bit, but I want to recap for just a minute. But the Bible was not assembled, okay, till about 350 years after the resurrection. Now, when I say assembled, I mean they took the Jewish scripture, they took the documents of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they took the apostle Peter, he had two letters that they took those letters, including what he had he had collaborated with, with John Mark and written, uh, they took the apostle Paul's letters, they took the book of Revelation, 
and they put all of that together, and it comes to us as the Bible. But the Bible wasn't assembled until about the 4th century. So if no one knew about the resurrection until the Bible came to be, then no one knew about the resurrection for about 400 years, or 350 to 400 years after the resurrection. So think about that. So no one would have known about the resurrection for 400 years after the resurrection. We don't know about the resurrection because the Bible. We do know about the resurrection because. Why? Anybody want to guess? Because Matthew. Matthew told us. (laughs) Matthew wrote it down. He wrote in pretty great detail a lot about the resurrection. So Matthew told us. And then you know who else told us? Mark. Mark. Mark told us about the resurrection. He sat down with Peter, and Peter told the stories of the life of Christ over and over and over, and Mark wrote it, and that's a series we've been in. For those of you that are just catching up, uh, we've been in the middle of this series from the Gospel of Mark. We also know it from, from Luke. Luke tells us about it. In fact, Luke says this. He says, talking about the life of Christ, he says, I have thoroughly investigated these facts. I have thoroughly investigated Everything. In other words, I went personally from eyewitness to eyewitness to eyewitness to eyewitness, and I have documented everything I can for you, Theophilus, which is who he was writing this, his document for. In fact, Luke says, while he was writing his document, he says, this event was so spectacular that many, many people begin to sit down and attempt to write out an orderly account of the life of Jesus. It was so spectacular because something happened, okay? So Luke tells us about it. Not only Luke, but we know about the resurrection because John, John also told us. Way before there was a Bible, John told us about the resurrection. John, in his old age, he started telling us about these signs and these wonders, these things that Jesus did. And he says, I'm telling you these signs because I want you to understand that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is the living Son of God. That's what John would tell us, because John wrote these documents way before there was a Bible. Oh, you know who else would tell us? Peter. Peter. He wrote his documents. There was no Bible. Okay? When Peter wrote his letters, there was no Bible. When Peter sat down with, with John Mark, when Peter was arrested, Peter tells his story to John Mark, and John writes it down. It comes to us as the Gospel of Mark, and that's in the Bible. But back then, it wasn't the Bible. It was just So Peter, he tells us about the resurrection. And then there's my favorite, James. James tells us about the resurrection. Okay, we know about it from James. Why is it so important coming from James? Is because James was the brother of Jesus. Okay, we like to talk about this here because it's funny, but think about it this way. What would your brother have to do to convince you that they are the Messiah, the Son of God, right? Or what would you have to do, I was thinking about that, to convince my sister, Krista, that I actually am the Son of God? Okay, it would take a lot. As awesome as I would like to believe that I might be, I think it would take a lot of convincing to convince my sister that I and, and listen, when Jesus began to say these kinds of things about himself, James didn't buy it. James didn't believe it. In fact, we just studied this a few weeks ago in, in the book of Mark. Peter tells us a story that there was one point that Mary showed up. The teachers of the law had come up from Jerusalem. They had come up from Jerusalem, and they were right in the area of Galilee up north. And Jesus was making these crazy claims and teaching some crazy stuff. And all these religious people were following him around, and they were trying to get some evidence so that they could kill him. And Mary shows up, and Mary and her family shows up. Some of Jesus' brothers show up. A lot of scholars believe that James is one of them that showed up. And you know what Mary says to the, the elders and the chief priests and stuff like that? Jesus has lost his mind. That's what she said. James was a part of that group. James was a part of the family group that believed that Jesus had lost his mind. But something happened. And one day James saw his brother alive from the dead. 
Then when James shows up on the pages of the book of Acts, when he shows up in history, James is now the leader of the church. So James went from, you're not going to convince me you're the Messiah. You're just my knucklehead brother. You're just a knucklehead carpenter, brother of mine that I've seen my whole life. There's no way you're the Messiah. James goes from that to becoming the leader of the church and believing. and In fact, James believed so much so that he became a martyr. He died because he was convinced that his own brother was his Lord, his Savior. So, so when, when I look at, at the resurrection, I don't believe the resurrection happened because the Bible tells me so. I believe the resurrection happened because Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and James, and then you've got the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul shows up, and when he shows up in history, he's actually trying to shut the church down. He's trying to stop the movement. He's trying to stop the church. He's trying to destroy the church. And the Apostle Paul writes, and he tells us about the resurrection. We don't have a Bible because we don't have the res- we don't believe the resurrection because the Bible. We have the Bible because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would be no Bible. And there are people who would disagree with that statement. But if you think about it, the only reason that we have it, and don't don't miss this, the only reason that Jesus' story was worth telling was because Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus' story wasn't worth telling because of his teachings, okay? In fact, his teachings, like I said earlier, were a reason a lot of people didn't even want to follow him because it was crazy. His story isn't worth telling because he made these outrageous claims about himself. If you go and you study in history, you'll notice that when Jesus died, even before Jesus died, but especially when Jesus died, there are several characters who raise up and become, that start claiming themselves as the Messiah. There are several characters that actually have thousands and thousands of followers following them, and they're claiming to be the Messiah before and after Jesus. So this wasn't just, you know, he claimed to be the Messiah, so everybody says, oh, this is a new thing. Let's jump on that bandwagon. So it wasn't that. But the the reason that we believe, and it wasn't also because of the crucifixion. There were tens of thousands of crucifixions. That wasn't the big deal. The only reason that Jesus' story was worth telling was the resurrection. The resurrection. Something happened. Something happened. Not his teachings, not his healings, not the fact that he died, not the fact that he was buried, but the fact that he rose from the grave. And as it turns out, because of the resurrection, Jesus' story is absolutely worth telling. So, for over 30 years, the Apostle Peter would tell that story that I just told you. We've been talking about this for the last seven weeks leading up to this moment, but the Apostle Peter would travel around and he would tell that story. He would tell the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, some of the things he did, some of the things he said. And and as he's telling the story now, he has the same vantage point that we do because he actually saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And he would go around and he would tell the story for 30-some-odd years. And and Christians, people would invite him into their homes over and over and over. And they would invite friends and family and neighbors. And they would ask Peter, tell us the story of Jesus. Tell us the story of Jesus because Peter was with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He saw it. So Peter would tell this story over and over and over for some 30-odd years. Now Peter ends up in Rome. He's in Nero's Rome. And at this point, Peter doesn't know at the time, but he's not going to leave the city alive. This is it. His life is about to come to an end. He doesn't know that he's about to die yet, but he's in prison, and he's there with, with Mark. And Mark was his traveling companion. Mark, John Mark was with Peter for several years. 
and Peter told this story over and over and over. John Mark had heard these stories of Jesus over and over and over, and John Mark's with Peter, and this is getting towards the end of Peter's life, and they get to this point of the story. Up to now, they've written everything that we've talked about over the last seven weeks. John Mark probably looks at Peter, and he says, okay, now we're to the big one. This is the moment that we've been writing all of this stuff for. Everything that we've talked about in the past that I've written down all leads up to this moment. So I'm going to write it down, talk slow, tell me what happened. So they sit down. Peter says, okay, here's what happened. Peter says this in uh, Mark chapter 15. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council. I said this uh, last week. The Jewish council was kind of like their supreme court. So this is kind of a big shot. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph was hoping that Jesus was going to usher in the kingdom of God. Like everyone else, though, when Jesus died, Joseph lost faith. When Jesus died, it was kind of game over because God's Messiah could not possibly die. He couldn't possibly be crucified. So Joseph, he went boldly to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, so he summoned the centurion, the guy who oversaw the crucifixion, and he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now, this was very a, a very unusual practice. And so Joseph bought some linen cloth. He took the body of Jesus down from the cross, and he wrapped it in linen, and he placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Again, this was his family tomb. And he rolled a huge, enormous stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus had been laid. Okay? And then... When the Sabbath was over and, and it was actually legal for them to go back because when they saw where Jesus was laid, it was illegal for them to actually do anything in the moment. And so when it was legal for them, they went back when the Sabbath was over and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And why did they go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body? because they expected Jesus to be dead and to stay dead. They were going to honor his life and honor the, the things that, that he lived for and the things that he said, and they were paying their respects. This was a great uh, sign of worship for the man that he was, and they believed that he was going to stay dead, so they were going to honor him. And then, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, when they were on their way to the tomb, they're thinking about this, and they're talking, and then it dawns on them, uh-oh, we got a problem. When they ask each other, who's actually going to roll this stone away when we get there? Because it's a huge stone. We're not going to, the two of us, we're not going to be able to do it. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away, and they did something that I'm not sure <coughs> you and I would have done. I probably would have because this is a little bit my character, but they went in right? A lot of people probably, if you see the tomb open, you're like, uh, uh-uh, I ain't going in there, right? How many of you, that's the way you would have thought? You wouldn't go in? How many of you would have went in? Really? That's me too. <laughs> I'm an explorer. It's like, I'll be right back. Never mind. So, so they went in. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the side, and they were alarmed. They jumped a little bit. They freaked out, and he says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who, Nazarene who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? And then he gives them some instructions. He says this, but you go and you tell his disciples and Peter. And that's I love that part. You go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he has told you. 
So the women, they go out and they find the disciples and Peter. And then we're told this, that Peter and John, they run back to the tomb and they rush in to see for themselves if Jesus was there. And you know the story. They look inside. Jesus isn't there. They're all confused. They're walking around going, what happened? What has happened? What is happening? What is going on? What is happening? What's funny is at this point, they still don't assume a resurrection. They weren't superstitious. They didn't even think about this. Even though Jesus had told them over and over and over what's probably going to happen, nobody was believing that that actually happened. And so they walked away. They're confused. And they go ahead and they make their way to Galilee just as they were instructed to do. And Peter and the rest of the disciples get there, and there they meet their risen Savior And they actually have this really intimate moment, and they have breakfast with him on the beach in Galilee. Now, we can't prove exactly where this was, but if you'll put the map up, TJ, and I'm going to probably walk out of the camera for just a moment, but I want to show this. This story that we've been telling over the last seven weeks, over and over and over, it started... So the story that we've been telling for the last several weeks started up here with the Sea of Galilee. Remember, seven weeks ago or so, Jesus starts talking to Peter and asking to follow. And and then they're going up into the city of Capernaum, and there they run into Matthew, and and he's he's a tax collector, and, and they have that. That all happened around the Sea of Galilee. And so when I think about this story, I think, how awesome, how awesome of a picture it must have been that Jesus, he didn't stay in Jerusalem and say, hey, tell the guys to meet me here in the city or tell the guys to meet me at the temple. They went and met at the place that this all started, at the place that it all began, the Sea of Galilee, right there on the beach. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, Peter would tell you, and Andrew, and James, and John would all assure you this. They would say this to you this morning, and I say this to you, that your faith, that your sacrifice, that your compassion, that your generosity, that your loyalty, that your love, and most importantly, that your hope is not in vain. If you're unconvinced, maybe Peter would walk in this morning and he would lean in and and if all these guys were here and they could tell the story to you face to face, Peter would obviously be the first one to speak up. He's the talker of the group. And Peter would say, look, I understand because there was a point that I too was unconvinced. There was a point that I was really convinced he wasn't, absolutely not who he said he was. Had I been convinced the whole entire time, I wouldn't have done the things I did. I would have stuck with him. I would have followed him. I would have fought. But there was a point that things happened, and I started talking myself out of it, and I started believing, okay, he's not who I thought he was. Because I watched him. I watched him get arrested. And when he got arrested, that bothered me. And so I kind of fought it a little bit, but they walked him off, and I thought, this can't be happening. And then I watched him beat him. And then I watched him hang him on a cross. And then he stopped breathing. And from the back of the crowd, I watched, and he didn't start breathing again. And it was over. And Peter would probably tell you this morning, and I watched as people disappeared, the crowd just abandoned. And Joseph, sometime later, shows up, and he takes Jesus' limp body down off the cross. I watched it, and it was over. I was unconvinced. But then something happened. Something happened. And that's the point, I think, that, that we have got to hold on to as believers more than anything else in the world is that something happened. Something happened that changed history 
forever. That changed life forever. And that was that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. Peter would probably say things like, I spent the next 30 years risking my life. Every time I went into someone's house and started telling the story, a lot of times I had to have somebody stand at the door and watch my back. I had to keep it under wraps and keep it quiet for the most part because I was still in a very hostile region towards this man and what had happened. But I saw it happen, and I spent 30 years of my life trying to convince everyone that I could of what I had seen because I saw it. I saw it with my very own eyes. My Savior lived. When I saw my resurrected rabbi, it was only then we're sitting there having breakfast on the beach, and it all dawned on me, everything that he had been teaching us up to this moment. For the first time, it all made sense. It all started to register and and click because Jesus taught us a central theme. And it's been the central theme of this entire series. Jesus said this. He said, the time has come. Okay? The time has come. There's something brand new for the entire world, and it has finally come. And he says, the kingdom of God has come near, which means you are never far. You are not far. You're always there. I finally understood what the invitation was all about because as he would teach this theme that the kingdom of heaven is is here, the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of heaven is here, and there's something new. As he would teach that over and over and over, he would always give us this invitation, and I finally understood the invitation, and it was this, to repent, to change my way of thinking, the way that I've always thought about everything. To change the way I've always thought about the temple. The temple was always it. To change the way I thought about some of Moses' teachings. To change the way I, I thought about the law and the commandments. To change the way I thought about God as Father. I had heard stories growing up over and over and over about things that God did and I never understood and I was always so fearful of who God was because of what God could do to me. But then Jesus comes in, and he does nothing but love me, and he loves me unconditionally, and he loves me hard, and he teaches me, and he lifts me up, and he believed in me when no one else believed in me, and he showed me grace and mercy that I had never seen before over and over and over. And then he makes statements like this, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. That's what the Father looks like. And he says, something happened. Repent, change your way of thinking, and believe. From now on, believe this. Believe the good news. Because it is great news, amen? It is good news. And Peter would say, listen, God has done something for you because God is for you. Okay? God has done something for you because God is for you. And he simply wants you to receive the good news and believe the good news and accept the invitation to follow Jesus. Jesus introduced the kingdom of God to earth, and what's great about it is he introduced the kingdom of God to everyone. He gave everyone, everyone, the opportunity to participate in the kingdom. Now, what that means is that there are benefits. There are great things that come from the fact that we acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior and has done all these things for us. And when we begin to live our life to reflect the fact that He is our Father, there are so many blessings and benefits and things that come with that. That's why as a church today, our job is to represent and reflect that to people outside who also are a part of this, who God has also invited to participate in this kingdom. Because of what Jesus did, no body is left out. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left out. There's nobody that has done anything that could disqualify them from the kingdom of God. Think about that. 
I can think of a lot of bad people. I can think of a lot of people that have disqualified themselves from being my friend. I've unfriended them. Not in the kingdom of God. Nobody. Nobody's left out. And that's what, that's what the story and the resurrection of, of Christ is all about. And so Peter, he sits down with Mark, and he, he begins to document this whole thing. And he documents and he says, listen, there was always this message. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And if Peter showed up today, he would probably say, would y'all stop preaching it that way? That's the way I preached it when I was preparing. When, when Jesus, that's the way we, Jesus preached it when he was preparing for what was about to happen. The way it needs to be preached today is the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is here. You, me, we all are participants in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that awesome? And it makes you walk out of this place, and it makes you walk into your job and into your workplace with a, a whole new perspective of life because of what he's already done for us and what he's already qualified me to be. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. I just want to pray over you. I want to pray that that this morning you'll remind yourself that something happened. And that something happened, that's past tense. It happened a long, long, long time ago. And when, when that something happened, it changed everything for you and for me and when we embrace that our lives are different our lives reflect that our marriages reflect that our parenting skills reflect that so Jesus right now Jesus we say thank you so 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 very much for allowing yourself to step down from heaven and to walk this earth. Jesus, I thank you for everything that you endured on my behalf. The ridicule, the jokes, people poking fun at you. And the whole time you kept reminding yourself that you were on a mission. Not my will, but my Father's will. You were on a mission the entire time. And then it comes to the end of your life, and, and Jesus, you took it. You allowed them to say things about you. You allowed them to accuse you. You allowed them to beat you over and over and over and over. You allowed them to say so many things that were as far from the truth as could possibly be. And you kept reminding yourself that I'm on a mission, that I'm about my Father's business. It's not my will, but it's His will. You allowed them to take you and put you on a cross. And you gave up your last breath as a human as a man, as God in flesh. And you died. And then Jesus, just a couple days later, you began to breathe again. You began to breathe again. You got up and you walked out of that tomb with a mission in your mind that I'm all about my Father's business, that it's not my will, but His will. And as, as I begin to put these things in the right order and understanding what you meant, God, Jesus, what you were saying all along, you were trying to show us all along who the Father was. You came to reveal the Father. You came to reveal the Father's heart. And all along, God was inside of you. God was 
living and dwelling. You were one with God. And, and the purpose of you coming to this earth was to show us that we had it all wrong. That we had what God looked like all wrong. And that we had what God thought about us all wrong. And we had what God wanted to do to us and through us and for us all wrong. And Jesus, you came and you made it all right. And so, Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for revealing your heart to us. Who you are, your love for us, your passion for us, your grace for us, your mercy for us. My whole life, I always believed that it was Jesus was the superhero that saved us from a, an angry God who I could never please, I could never make happy. Jesus saved us from ourselves. Jesus just revealed who you were. And so for that, Father, I thank you so much. God, I pray that as we walk out of this place this morning, as we wake up tomorrow and go to work or go to school or wherever we're going, God, I pray that you remind us how much you, the Father, love us and the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We love you so much. We just give you all the praise. In your precious name we pray. Amen.